Lord, I thank you so much that we can gather today. And I thank you for just this community that we can uh, gather together in freedom, that we can study your word, sing worship songs to you, that we can read scripture, that we can uh, just love one another as Christian brothers and sisters, Lord. And I pray that you would be honored in that. And I pray, Lord, also specifically for anyone here today who doesn't yet know you, just God, that your Holy Spirit would be working in a very unique way and that you would open each of our eyes uh, to see you in a new way today, Lord. May your spirit be powerful among your people here. And may you instruct us and encourage us and uh, comfort us, uh, challenge us, whatever it is that we uniquely need today. And so we give this time to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I encourage you to turn to First John, the text that we are in right now in this series that is a series that is called Alignment. And we're talking about things from First John that are necessary in terms of our Christian life and how it is that we live out our faith, both the things that we know and understand in our minds and in our hearts, the things that we say, and also how we live. And so that's uh, what the idea around the alignment theme is. And, and John speaks of that considerably to the people that he's writing to, the congregation or congregations that, were, that he was leading. And uh, so he's giving many instructions that I think are so applicable to us as well too. If you look at 1 John, and even if you go back to the beginning of the letter, you'll notice that it's interesting in that it doesn't actually have any introduction. Like it, typically, these letters that are written are, have an introduction of some sort where it, it gives greetings or it even mentions names. 1 John is interesting in that it has none of that. It has no introduction, no names are mentioned, uh, nothing like that is, is part of it in sort of a preamble. And so it's an interesting uh, text in the sense that it is this sermon that is just meant for probably a broader audience. Um, even though John, as we looked at last week, does mention some names of people who left the church and who caused, were causing conflict there and were teaching a different gospel. He called them antichrists. That's a name. Not the best name, but that's what he referred to them as. And so he was dressed, uh, directing his attention towards some specific things that were happening, but we also can read this as a letter that is spoken of quite broadly, and I think, as we'll see today, many applications uh, for us today. So today we're in 1 John chapter 3, looking at verse 11 to the end, and the title of the, the message today is simply, Love in Words and Action, and so we're looking at alignment in this area of love, and I had also mentioned last week that John uh, repeats himself many times, that there are themes that go come again over and over, and, and we'll see that again. And he is speaking so much about what it means to love, to love God and to love one another. That is an absolutely central theme that John is bringing out in this text and that we'll, we'll see is also, I think, so relevant for us today also. Again, I'd also just mention that I'll, I'm going to go back and forth and make reference to John's gospel. And so, again, don't be confused by that. First John is a letter that he wrote to churches specifically addressing some issues and, and some of the things that we're seeing. John's gospel he wrote as a testimony of the accounts of Jesus' life uh, and ministry and his death and his resurrection. And so, at times I'll refer back because there's so many parallels between First John and the gospel of John. And so don't get confused by that, but we'll, we'll go back and forth a little bit uh, in that. So 1 John chapter 3, 11 to 15, we're going to look at it in kind of three sections of Scripture and make application of what uh, applies to us today and also to understand more of what he was speaking into that context. 
So let's just start by reading uh, verses 11 uh, to 15. He says, This is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We must not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and killed his brother. And why did he kill him? Because Cain had been doing what was evil, and his brother had been doing what was righteous. So don't be surprised, dear brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. If we love our Christian brothers and sisters, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates another brother or sister, meaning a Christian brother or sister, is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers do not have eternal life within them. He says at the beginning of 16 there, he says, here's the message that you've heard from the beginning. And again, it's interesting that even that is a bit of a repeat. He said something somewhat similar in chapter 2, verse 7, where he said, this, this, this is a command that I'm giving you. This command isn't a new command, actually. It's an old one. You know this. And so here again today, he's saying a similar thing where he's saying, this is a message that you've heard from the beginning. You should know this well. You need to love one another. And again, a phrase and a challenge and a command that I think so often is given to us that we sort of pass it off or we just sort of gloss over it because it's something that we hear almost too often in order to have it understand or settle in our hearts and and really kind of live out in our lives. And so he's saying to them, you've heard this before. You could go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 where the people of Israel, those who are of Jewish descent in his congregations, would have known that from Deuteronomy chapter 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength. It's a very common uh, words that were spoken and passed down through the generations. As I mentioned about John's gospel, in John's gospel, he speaks so much about this same theme as well. And we'll see some of those parallel passages today, and we'll, we'll come to those. And so maybe he's referring to that, the gospel that was already circulating among the churches. And so he's saying, again, you know this, you've heard this before. This is a message that you've known from the beginning. But regardless of, of what exactly he's pointing to here, what he is saying is he's saying that this is a basic command of the Christian faith. He's saying this is Christianity 101. This is some of the most fundamental things that you need to understand of what it means to walk with Christ. You need to love one another. And it starts in the church. Sometimes the place, is, place that it's hardest to love one another. But John's address here is to the church. And again, it comes out of this context that we looked at last week where there was this disunity, this antichrist, people opposed to Christ, preaching a different gospel uh, of Christ, something very different, false teachers who were fragmenting the church and how they had left. And now he is speaking mainly to those who remain and he's saying, okay, folks, we not only need to hold on to truth, we also have to hold on to the love for one another. And then he references this story of Cain and Abel from Genesis chapter 4. And it's an interesting reference that he makes. I sometimes wonder when I read things like this, I wonder, okay, how would they have heard this in that original context? And as I've read up on that, I mean, people, commentators have said how the story of Cain, especially in terms of the evil that was in him, was something that was a very prevalent story. People understood the story, made reference to it a lot. So it was a familiar, again, story to them. But he's saying, here's the ultimate contrast of what it means to love one another. The ultimate contrast. And it's the backdrop to what he's trying to teach here. I mean, here you have the first two offspring of Adam and Eve, 
You have Cain and Abel and how one of them, Cain, kills the other, kills his brother, Abel. And I look at that and I go, okay, 25% of the human population on earth is wiped out right there. It's a good thing that God can create people out of dust. But he's saying, here's the ultimate contrast to loving one another. Think of the story of Cain and Abel. Remember that story that we know. Remember what happened when Cain killed Abel. And why did he do it? Because Abel was doing something righteous. Cain was dabbling in what was evil, is what he says. Abel gave of his best, if you go back to the original story in Genesis 4. And Cain didn't seem to. He held back some of his best. And there was jealousy there. There was jealousy that was very much at the root of this murder that happened at that time. And John is saying that when you walk in righteousness, don't be surprised that the world hates you, as he says in verse 13. Essentially, the world will treat you as Cain treated Abel. And so he's saying it in a way, I think, meaning to shock, meaning to at least challenge these people to think a little bit. Again, like last week, if you look at chapter 3, verse 8, where he says to them, he says, if you keep on sinning, you are a child of the devil. Just pretty strong words. And so some commentators have said his, his comparison here to these people of not loving one another and referring to Cain would be kind of like saying you are like Stalin, you are like Hitler, you are like the worst murderer that you can think of, Osama bin Laden, pick your one, whatever. He says that is what it is like when you don't actually love one another in the church. And so the point is simple. Don't do that, he says. You know, some people who've observed the Christian church over the centuries and have been involved in different ways, especially where there is fragmentation and challenge and conflict, have made the observation that sometimes people in the church tend to shoot the wounded, which is a sad commentary, but sadly there is some truth to that at times. Where there's too much hate, evil, jealousy that can rise up in the hearts. Our own hearts. My heart. Your heart. Toward others. Because John is saying that when you hate a Christian brother or sister, you're a murderer at heart. If you remember in Matthew chapter 5, and you go back to that text, when Jesus was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he was teaching about anger, if you remember, and he, he said this. Jesus said, have you, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. I think these words of Jesus would have maybe probably been in John's mind in his background as he's thinking about what he's teaching here and he's saying to them about What's in our heart matters because, you see, abiding in Christ is so significant because it changes our heart. And he's challenging them at that level. And he says, so here's how we know that we have Christ within us. Well, first of all, we no longer want to kill our Christian brothers and sisters. That's a good start. But hopefully we'll go further than that, that there will actually be a deep abiding love. Because he says if you hate your Christian brothers and sisters in any way, there's darkness in you. And he says these actually cannot coexist because then you're abiding in death. And so as part of God's family, if you are 
part of the family of God. He's saying you need to learn to treat your siblings well. Your brothers and sisters need to be treated well. And again, the contrast of Cain and Abel would have been so strong for them as he's teaching on that. Because you see, what's in our heart matters. Because what's in our heart spills out. And again, at the, at the core of what happened with Cain and Abel was this jealousy, this envy of his brother, and these ugly things that come out. And, and again, in Mark's gospel, if you turn to Mark chapter 7, we see a reference to that where Jesus was teaching and he said the same thing about what comes from within, what comes from your heart is what defiles you. And Jesus is being challenged by some of the laws and rituals or the way that what was, was pure and good according to eating uh, regulations and rules. And he says, Jesus says this, he says it, it's, it's what comes from within that, de- that defiles you inside. He says, For from within, out of a person's heart, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. Not the food that you put in your mouth, what Jesus was saying. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, the writer says, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. So what's in our heart matters. It reveals things. When the Scripture is speaking about our heart, it's not talking about the the physical organ in our body that actually pumps blood to the rest of our body. It's talking about this central mysterious place that is the origin of compassion, of love, of loyalty. But it's also this seemingly this place of origin of anger and greed and pride and jealousy. And we see things that maybe happen around us in family or friends or even in our own lives and we go, oh man, how, how could that have happened And it appears suddenly, and we suddenly see a wife who cheats on her husband, or the other way around. Or we see a harmless pastime that suddenly becomes a very destructive habit. Or we see the the careless handling of company money becomes a pattern of theft. And it appears sudden, but what John is saying in terms of the principle is that it's, it's really not sudden. Because it's pointing to the fact that there are dead things in the heart long before these things appear. Something's dead. Something's dying. Something is not healthy. And jealousy, just like Cain had, also kills community. Kills the community in the church. Jealousy is one of those things that me don't often think a lot about, but it's something that undermines the unity in a church in so many different ways because we compare to one another so much and we have this jealousy so much at times and some of those things can come within our hearts and they surface in different ways. And You know, when jealousy is in your heart, you can tell it pretty quickly because a couple of things happen. First of all, you know that jealousy is in your heart when when first of all, you cannot celebrate when somebody else succeeds. You know that feeling. When somebody else gets ahead, somebody else gets a promotion, somebody else does well, somebody else seems to be really blessed, and you just have no capacity to celebrate with them. Or worse, the darker side of that is that when actually you celebrate when somebody fails. And you, you don't really do it overtly, but 
in, in deep in your heart, there's just sort of this little, yes, they finally got what they deserved. And that thing when somebody falls and somebody fails and there's that, that sort of that celebration, that little small celebration, that moment that reveals something within our heart that is dark. And it reminds us that jealousy is there and lurking. And how do you combat that? Well, first of all, you confess it and you repent. And second of all, one of the best ways to combat that is you learn to celebrate when other people succeed. You just go in the opposite direction. And when somebody gets ahead or somebody does well or somebody, you know, something happens financially or in their workplace or whatever, and even though you long for the same thing, you just go, way to go, good for you. And you do it publicly, you do it genuinely. And you say, I am so happy for you. And you mean it. That's how you combat it. That's how you combat jealousy in your heart as God starts to transform you and change you. Because jealousy leads to dead hearts and fractured community, just like in Cain and Abel's story. But let's keep reading in John, 1 John chapter 3. And we're at 16. He says, We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for other brothers, for our brothers and sisters. Now, it's interesting. Again, if, if Cain is the negative example, here is the ultimate example. John is saying, here is the greatest example of this that you could ever find that Jesus has modeled, completely opposite of what Cain did. Completely opposite of, of what the negative side of it is. And here's how you need to live in community. Here's what loving one another looks like. It is sacrifice for another, even to the point of death. If you remember last week, I talked some about family resemblance, that there, there needs to be a time when you, or, or, as we grow in Christ, as we abide in Christ, that there should be a family resemblance that starts to take place, that we look like Jesus more and more and more by the grace of God and by the power of his Holy Spirit. And that's what John is saying here, is that you need to look at Jesus. He's the ultimate example. He gave his life for a world that was completely opposed to him. He died on behalf of us so that we might be free. And John is saying, this is the kind of church that we need. This is the kind of people that we need to be to love one another in that kind of way. And again, if you go to John chapter 15, in John chapter 15, in the Gospel of John, you see a text that is is somewhat parallel to that, verse 12 to 13. says it this way Jesus is speaking he says this is my commandment love each other in the same way that I have loved you and there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends and there's Jesus's teaching and also what he modeled by going to the cross and today we'll be taking communion together and that's what we remember and we celebrate is we remember that ultimate sacrifice of what true love of loving one another ultimately looks like and how Jesus modeled it and John is calling the church to this family resemblance. We need to look like that. We need to be willing to sacrifice for others. We need to be able to lay down our priorities, our preferences, in order to love other people. And then, just in case they didn't understand it, he gives them a, a real tangible example as he continues on in verse 17 to 19. He says, If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let's show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth. So we will be confident when we stand before God. 
So again, John is saying, here's, some, here's one tangible expression. Okay, As you are in the church and you see a brother or sister in need and you have plenty, he says you need to help them. It's an expression of love. And, and he's saying that our love is evident by how we live it out. As one commentator says, he says, love that fails to take the form of action on behalf of others is nothing more than religious rhetoric. And I think, oh Lord, how often have I just given religious rhetoric? But our actions show that we stand confidently in the truth and also give evidence to the true love that we have for one another. There's alignment. They line up. The words and the actions coexist together. And then we read in verse uh, 20 to 21 as we keep reading. Even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings and he knows everything. Dear friends, if we don't feel guilty, we can come to God with bold confidence. And he's saying guilt then does not control us. Guilt then does not condemn us. It has been dealt with on the cross by Jesus. We can come to God with great confidence. And this is the great gift of the gospel. What we celebrate at communion, this truth that our sins have been covered. That we are set free from the guilt and the implications of our sin. And he says you can come therefore to the throne of God with full confidence. But you know that if we're stuck in our guilt, all we feel is the opposite, right? It does the opposite. When we are stuck in our guilt, it causes us to shrink back. To shrink back from the church, to shrink back from other people, to shrink back from God, and we are timid. When people have this ongoing sin that causes people, uh, it causes people to pull back in community all the time. And sadly, I see it too often. And even at times where, where people in the church, they shrink back and you wonder, okay, well, why... Why isn't it that they're serving? Or why isn't it that they're involved? Or why are they so timid to get involved? And sometimes, sometimes, it's because there's this ongoing sin and this overwhelming guilt that hasn't been dealt with. And they feel shame. They don't know what to do with it. It immobilizes you. Even just this week, I've been in two conversations with two different families, neither of which are from our church, actually. But where sexual sin destroyed trust and fragmented families, caused unbelievable shame and brokenness. Affects, it affects earthly relationships in all kinds of ways. And it affects our heavenly relationship as well between us and the Father. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians, he, he says to the church in 2 Corinthians about this ministry of reconciliation that, that we have been given. He says in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 5, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. This is the message of the gospel. This is what we celebrate at the communion table. That we don't have to live under the shadow and the weight of guilt anymore. That we can be free. That we can repent. That God forgives us. That it doesn't have to hold us hostage anymore. That we can come into the throne room of God with confidence because of what He has done on the cross. It's an amazing gift. 
John is saying here that this kind of alignment matters. There is forgiveness, absolutely. God can forgive and reconcile when there is repentance and an open heart towards that. But we also know that it's not the same as the return of all the rights and privileges. We also know that when people walk through some of those painful decisions and situations, even though that there's forgiveness, we can walk with a limp for a really long time. And others around us walk for a limp with a really long time, and it can take a long time to heal. Which is why John is pleading with the church that your faith needs to have a theological understanding and an ethical understanding. It needs to not only align with how you think, but how you live, because it has consequences when you live in a different way. And he says in verse 22, if we keep reading, verse 22, he says, and we will receive from him whatever we ask because we obey him and do the things that please him. It's a powerful verse about prayer. And as I said, one of the first areas that we tend to pull back from if we are overcome with guilt and we haven't been freed from our sin is our prayer life. Because a life out of alignment affects our prayer life. It affects our boldness before God. We feel like we cannot come before God and we shrink back from those things. And again, you need to know and to hear again that there's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. But how we live does impact how God responds to us. That is a truth that we do see throughout Scripture. And again, if you go into uh, John's Gospel in, in verse, chapter 9, verse 31, it's where the man was healed and he is being asked, how is it that you were healed from your blindness? And people were thinking, okay, there must have been sin in your life or something, and he's being challenged about where it came from. And the, the blind man who is healed says this, he says, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. If you go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Peter's talking about husbands and wives, and he's saying, husbands, here's how you need to treat your wives. You need to treat them well. Why? Because treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. In other words, husbands, it says, your prayers are hindered when you don't treat your wives well. If you go to Proverbs chapter 28, verse 9, it says, God detests the prayers of a person who ignores the law. Again, it's this truth that our prayers are hindered. God's response to us in our prayers are hindered as we walk in sin and in darkness. And so John is saying the opposite of that in verse 22. He's saying, here's the freedom that you have. And he says, and we will receive from him whatever we ask because we obey him and do the things that please him. In other words, we can enter into the throne room of God with freedom, with boldness, because of the grace of God. And God bends to listen to our prayers. Isn't that a beautiful picture and truth that we see? And then the last two verses in this section and of this chapter, verse 23 and 24. It says, and this is his commandment. We must believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as he commanded us. Those who obey God's commandments remain in fellowship with him and he with them. And we know he lives in us because the spirit he gave us lives in us. It's so similar, again, to John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 10, where in that text he says, Jesus is saying, when you obey my commands, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. And so Jesus was saying the very same thing, and I'm sure John is referencing that, even though not directly here. So we see that a Christian life requires alignment, again, both theologically, 
terms of how we think and understand who Jesus is, who God is, but also, also ethically in terms of how it is that we live and the decisions that we make. And our love for one another gives evidence to that. Abiding in Christ gives evidence in that. So John is saying, yes, our view of who Jesus is, and that's one I said earlier on in the series that Christology of who Jesus is is so central to John's teaching. And here again, it comes up again. He is God's Son, died on the cross, raised from the dead. This is what saves us. And our obedient life gives evidence to that. So in simple terms, I look at this section of text and John is saying, love God and love one another. Pretty straightforward to say, sometimes challenging to do. When Jesus was asked, What's the greatest commandment? He said a very similar thing. He says you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you need to love your neighbor as yourself. He says all the commandments kind of hang on these two things. There it is. And John is saying that here as well, is that we need to love God and love your neighbor. And that last verse that we see there, he speaks about the Spirit. I think it's so directly connected to the rest. We cannot love others without the Spirit's work in our lives. So you might think of it this way. In this progression, how do I know that I'm saved? Uh, I abide in Christ because I have the Spirit within me. I know I'm saved because I have the Spirit in me. How do I know that I have the Spirit? Because the Spirit is producing fruit of the Spirit in my life. I'm able to love those who are unlovable, patient with those who I should be angry with, celebrate with those who succeed, kind to those who lash out. I feel peace amidst the trials. I forgive rather than record all the wrongs. This is the, the evidence of the Spirit within you. This is the evidence of the Spirit alive and working in the body of Christ in the church. This is what it means to love one another. So we need to love in both words and action. They need to be in alignment. And again, it starts with the church, with our brothers and sisters. And sadly, only too often churches are fragmented so many times in this area. And even though, as we talked about last week, it's not unity at all costs. Truth matters. Truth definitely matters. But unity and loving one another is so, so, so important for our witness. And again, I'm reminded of Jesus' prayer, His last prayer, again recorded in John's Gospel, in John chapter 17, when Jesus prayed for all His disciples and for those who would follow them. And He said, I'm praying not only for these disciples as Jesus prayed to His heavenly Father, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will be, all be one, just as you and I are one. And as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. When the church is unified, and when the church loves one another, it's a testimony to the world. It says this gospel is real. This gospel makes a difference. Transformation is occurring These people love each other. That's the kind of church we pray for. That's the kind of church we want to be. That's the kind of church that you can only be by the power of His Spirit. Because you see, the world watches to see how the church loves those within its body. And it gives great testimony to the reality of Jesus and the implications of the cross. I'd invite you to stand and invite the worship team up as they lead us in song, and just stand with me as I conclude our time in prayer.
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for the ultimate example of this sacrificial love of truly dying for a brother or a sister. And God, God, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for a world that was so opposed to you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand this more deeply, even today as we take communion, as we reflect on the price that was paid on the cross and your extravagant love for us. Help us to respond with a more extravagant love for each other. And Lord, I pray that you would just reveal to us what's in our hearts. Reveal to us where we are truly at and help us to deal in whatever ways we need to appropriately deal with those things, Lord. Help us to be people who are quick to confess our sins to you. Help us to be people who are quick to apology and to confess our sins to each other where we need to do that, Lord. And help us to walk in that spirit and ministry of reconciliation that you have called us to. Lord, help us to be the church. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.